So back in uh, March of 2021, I, re I received some news um, through some friends that a, a man I had met a few years before was severely injured in a car accident. Um, something that wasn't his fault, something totally unexpected. Uh, his name was Derek, and, and Derek and a couple of his friends had come through our church in, I think, early 2018. And they were on a mission, him and his, these two other guys were on this mission to visit every state in the U.S. and see what God was up to, and just to go there and with no plan and just say, okay, God, you direct me to what you're doing and the work that you need me to do in this state. And uh, they called their project the Open Door Project. And they, they were doing these things, and God had been moving in miraculous ways. Um, they had endless stories of what God was doing in each one of these states and the people that God led them to. And I, they were just crazy. And so they, as they were traveling through Iowa, they came to our church and uh, were sharing what was going on. And they were only halfway through their journey at that time. Now, Derek and I connected really deeply pretty quickly because we had a really similar um, story of how we grew up and um, kind of the same types of crowds, the, the Christian, like, rock music scene and uh, hanging out at skate parks and those type of things. And um, one of the nights that they were in town, we just stayed up really late discussing life and the journey we had been on and, and where we were going. And at that time, Victoria and I thought that maybe God was moving us on to something new and something different. And I had shared that with him. And um, after they left, he was faithfully praying for us and sending me encouraging messages. And um, we just stayed really connected that way. Now, Derek grew up knowing God, like, you know, as some of us do, he went to Sunday school and he had this relationship with a God that, you know, existed somewhere over there, but it didn't really change his life until later in his life he um, had a major encounter with God and it changed everything for him. He was actually trying to run away from everything God had for him and, you know, kind of like God does, he showed up in the middle of his mess and changed everything for him. And Derek went on to start helping with the skate ministry that literally led him all over the world to share the gospel. You know, and so that kind of led to his Open Door Project. And after the Open Door Project, they visited all the states. He moved back to Florida, his hometown, and was praying about what was next, helping out with the local skate park ministry, and writing a book. Right? Derek wrote a book called Simple Obedience. And the little tagline it was that, how do you create kingdom in your everyday? It's a really great book. I quote it often. Um, this book became available for pre-order on his birthday, which was the day before this horrible accident. His book is all about how do you bring God's divine power into your everyday life? And it's filled with story after story after story of how God showed up in these many, many different powerful ways through Derek's like eyes, what he's seen God do. And now this guy whose biggest advocate, was the biggest advocate for the power of prayer and the power of healing was a guy who needed that same power of prayer in his very own life. It felt like within a couple of days, the whole world was praying for him. Literally the whole world, because he had been everywhere. And all these people knew about him. Why he lied in ICU in a coma. People were just very unsure what would happen when he would wake up. Eventually he did wake up from his coma. But he was not who he was before. Um, he's physically disformed, partially paralyzed, unable to speak. Can't even respond to people. Over the next year or so, he starts to be able to communicate in some small ways. He recognizes some family members that had continued to be in his life. But it's pretty clear that he had no memory of who he was before. The latest update from his mom after two and a half years, just a couple months ago, he still doesn't know who he used to be, who he was. He can barely grasp what's going on in his day-to-day. -day. He's unable to use the right side of his body. He tries to speak, but it's mostly incomprehensible. And I still wrestle to this day why God hasn't responded to our prayers. Why did he not heal Derek? Right? This man who gave so much of his life for God, who is reaching people daily like thousands of people know Jesus now because of Derek. And Derek is not even who Derek was. How can so many believers pray for him, yet nothing happens? Right? I've seen God do huge miracles on a, on a lot less prayer. Right? I've seen God instantly heal people. Broken bodies, making the lame walk and the deaf hear. 
let alone all the things that we've read in scripture, but why would God not be moved to do something for Derek? I think we all have things in life that we've prayed for and we don't understand why God hasn't answered. And we start to feel that either God's not powerful enough, God's not good enough, but either way, our only choice, it feels like at the time, is to just diminish our view of God. We're in our series, Prayer, Invitation into the Wonder and the Mystery of Prayer. We've been using Tyler Statton's book, Praying Like Monks and Living Like Fools, as a guide for this series. Now, theologians call this unavoidable question that enters our lives because of suffering around us, theodicy. It's an English word formed from two Latin words, meaning the justice of God. There's no spirituality, philosophy, or worldview that manages to sidestep the theodicy. Theodicy's simple definition is this. It's a philosophical attempt to explain the existence of evil and suffering in a God-created good world. How can God create this world, call it good, and everything in it good, yet there still be evil and suffering? And how do those exist together? That is theodicy. No matter how you explain life, you always get stuck trying to fit the square peg of justice and goodness in the round hole of suffering. And Jesus understood this. Jesus fell to his knees at the final hours of his life to pray, as we talked about last uh, two weeks ago. In Mark 14, 35 through 36, it says that he, Jesus, went on a little farther and fell to the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, that the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me, Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Right? There's this beautiful sentiment there, this tension held between how approachable God is, that, that Jesus would cry out, Daddy God, Father God, this, this closeness, but yet the majesty of God, his limitless power. Everything is possible for you. Right? An intimate Father who, for whom nothing is out of reach. But that prayer right there, is also the, the rub in our faith, right? Because if Jesus' words are true, that everything is possible for you, then God has some explaining to do, right? Right, because from at least mine and probably your vantage point, there's a long, shocking list of things that God in his infinite power and perfect in love hasn't done. It's worth pointing out that Jesus' prayer in the garden that night was not answered in the manner that he prayed it. Right? The cup of suffering did not, was not taken away from him. Right? Jesus, the, the one born without the help of biology, who moved across lakes and seas like they were dance floors. I'm just kidding, I can't moonwalk. You, know, you guys were really excited for a second, I saw it. He fed masses with a little boy's lunch. He, he took dirt and his own spit and rubbed it together and healed blind people. He set demons running. He breathed life, life into corpses with a single command. That same Jesus endured the silence of God. Unanswered prayer stalked Jesus' final hours of his life. I think we all have one critical area in our lives in which God, who is present in many ways, seems very obviously absent and very silent. Sometimes I think that, you know, if God, if you just respond, no, right, right, while it would be a pretty hard pill to swallow, at least it's like God heard us. And, you know, in his wisdom and his eternal perspective, he's made a decision. Right? Like a no would be way easier sometimes than just the silence and the waiting. No is disheartening. But at least it leaves a foundation for ongoing communication, right? The no brings us what we feel into more relationship. But silence? Have you guys ever had the silence treatment from someone before? Right? That is not an invitation to more relationship. Silence feels like God sees and he hears, but then he's just willfully ignoring our distress. That's what divine silence feels like to that person that's 
you know, crying out with our hands clasped before God and nothing is changing. Like I was sharing, I've seen God move quickly at the smallest of prayers and remain silent, though, somehow through the many prayers of many believers. I know the power of God and I know the silence of God. And sometimes I think silence would be easier to handle had I never seen the power. A God with personality and a will is just unpredictable. Maybe it would be easier if we had a God that, you know, just worked like an operating system where you've just punched in the right buttons, the right combination of prayer. We get a very predictable result. But it's just not the God that's revealed throughout Scripture. It's not the God that's revealed in Jesus. And it's not the God that I've walked with for many years. Of everything that Jesus had to say on prayer, that perhaps maybe there's no fam- more famous yet more confusing words sometimes than the three simple verbs he used to explain prayer. Ask, seek, and knock. This is found in Matthew 7, 7 through 8 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. On one hand, these verbs issue an empowering, straightforward invitation, right? It's like, ask, seek, and knock, and everything will come true. But on the other hand, this invitation doesn't seem to deliver consistent, predictable results at all. Was this false advertising? Did Jesus overpromise? You know, is there like a smaller script written underneath with all the reasons why it may not quite happen? You know, the side effects? Maybe his original meanings lost in the translation across centuries, traditions, and the translations of Scripture. In these three verbs, Jesus is naming the trail markers of a prayer journey, right? The common path tread by men and women of faith, stretching all the way back to the beginning. And prayer is a journey that starts with need and ends with relationship. Ask. Ask refers to the requests that bring us to prayer, right? Most prayers are preceded by a need that comes up, right? A diagnosis, a car accident, another unexpected bill, the loss of a job, a breakup. Life has a way of dealing us a card or two that we never saw coming, right? And we don't know how to make sense of it. You know, we're just happily humming along life. Everything's good. We're content with our fragile elusive, escaping sense of control over our lives when all of a sudden we're gut-punched or mugged in broad daylight by the, the life that we thought was ours. We find ourselves in the story we don't recognize with no way back to the plot that we were living. And that's when we ask. Now, seek. Seek is a word that was peppered throughout Scripture and often refers to God himself. We're instructed to seek God through the stories of the kings and the judges in the Old Testament, the poetry of Psalms, and the cries of the prophets. By using the word seek, Jesus was pointing to the way along the path of prayer. We come asking, but we discover a relationship amid the mess. We come seeking gifts, and we often get them. We've talked about how God is a good father who loves to give good gifts. But the greatest gift is the one we are really after, the one that we're guaranteed to receive is the giver himself. And then knock. This is Jesus' final verb in his teaching on prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the destination of the prayer journey that begins in a need. Knock, biblically speaking, prompts us to think of table fellowship or inviting people into your home for dinner. This is a challenging image in the world that we live in, the world of hyper-individualism, of fast food, power lunches, and takeout, right? Like most people have a dining room table at their house, but it's not for eating at, it's for holding all your stuff, right? You know, the eating place is the couch in front of the TV or McDonald's, you know, like, it's not the table. But this was also pretty provocative in ancient Hebrew world. Because to have someone over to your house was where acceptance, dignity, and equality were given. To dine with someone back then 
was not merely to tolerate someone's company while getting some nourishment. To share a table was the greatest affirmation of their character of who someone was, the truest and deepest form of intimacy. Jesus was criticized on multiple occasions through the gospels for breaking bread with tax collectors, with prostitutes and other sinners. Because this was that reason that when he chose to have dinner with them, when, when Zacchaeus, you know, the wee little guy climbed down from the tree and Jesus said, I'm coming to your house for dinner today. What he told everybody was, I know that you guys hate him, but I accept him. The greatest illustration of prayer that Jesus gave is the one he lived. Right? The alpha and omega, the holy and infallible one welcomes us to the table. He does not simply tolerate our company or just benevolently entertain our requests. He affirms our person. He chooses our company and he delights in our presence. Mother Teresa once wrote, prayer enlarges the heart until it is capable of containing God's gift of himself. Ask, seek, and your heart will grow big enough to receive him and keep him as your own. Right? We come into prayer for gifts, but we get the giver. We find ourselves seated at his table, welcomed, accepted, and loved. Being fed, being listened to, being able to find peace in his presence. Prayer in any form by anybody is God's invitation to pull up a chair to the table and enjoy restful, intimate, unbroken conversation with the true in God. Or as Jesus succinctly said it, knock and the door will be open to you. Jesus shares a parable about this kind of persistence in prayer, the asking, the seeking, knocking. In Luke 18, in verse 1, it starts out, One day Jesus told his disciples a story to show them that they should always pray and never give up. There was a judge in a certain city. He said, he said who, there's a judge in a certain city, he said, who neither feared God nor cared about people. A widow of that city came to him repeatedly saying, Give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. The judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people. But this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she's wearing me out with her constant requests. Then the Lord said, learn a lesson from the unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on earth who have faith? Jesus is telling of the story of a widow advocating for herself in a court was confrontational to some in his audience and ennobling to others. Because at this time in history, tragically, a woman's testimony wasn't even permitted in a court of law. Right? The place of women in society was so low that their word was considered not trustworthy in matters of justice. Now, among that already degraded female class, widows ranked at the very bottom. Widows were not permitted to work in the Greco-Roman world, making them permanently depending, dependent on charity of society. Welfare at best, but usually homelessness if they didn't have family. When Jesus told this story of praying for justice, he gave the starring role to one of the lowest members of society around them. One whose voice was silenced, right? notably silenced. She didn't even have a voice when it came to court. The least authoritative but in Jesus' story, this woman's plea, grant me justice against my adversary, was heard and granted. Persistence was required, but her request wasn't just granted, it was granted quickly. And in Jesus' choice of characters, he was trying to tell us that those who feel powerless in prayer, that our prayers provoke God's action, even his quick, decisive action. Of course, some of you are thinking, that sounds like really poetic and nice. But what about the other side of the coin, the one we've been talking about? What happens when our asking doesn't result in receiving? Right? Our seeking leaves us with more questions than answers. And despite our knocking, it feels like no doors have been opened. Now, these three words, ask, seek, knock, are written in this Greek verb tense that we don't have today. We, we don't use that same grammatical equivalent in English and these aren't verbs that require just doing one time. 
It's an ongoing action. It, it takes place in the present, but then there's also planned to continue to take place in the future. It's why it's translated, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Right? Because what is Jesus' response to those who find ourselves asking when re- without receiving answers, seeking without finding, or knocking without things being welcomed in? His answer is persistence. Now, I agree, that's a very unsatisfying response. Right? Depending on your specific story of waiting or of silence, you may find that insensitive or offensive, right? A slap in your face. You're like, you don't know how much I've prayed about this thing. I have been persistent. It fills my thoughts day and night. I can't do anything but pray about this. Now, Jesus knew it would be a hard pill to swallow. Right? He's, he told several stories to try and help illustrate this point throughout his whole time on earth. Right? Trying to put flesh and bones to it. Trying to put it in, in, in your shoes so that you would understand it. Right? Not in the theoretical world that exists out there, but, but from people that you probably knew. Right? We talked about the man who bugged his neighbor for bread in the middle of the night from Luke 11. And the neighbor finally did it because the neighbor wouldn't stop knocking. Jesus talked about worldly fathers love to give good gifts. How much more so does your heavenly father from the Sermon on the Mount? And now he brings up this widow bugging a judge into acting on her behalf. All these stories serve as a, a biblical ground zero for those who in response to the waiting that prayer entails have maybe lowered their expectations about God. Right? Brought it to a lesser version that allows them to, to hold on to the God they love without being disappointed or angered by the ways of God, the ways that he seems to be failing them. Now, one thing that's distinct from this parable is that Jesus told us the purpose of this parable right at the beginning. Verse 1, he says, says, One day Jesus told his disciples a story to show them that they should always pray and never give up. Jesus knew this was going to be hard to hear. Luke knew that this was going to be hard to hear. So he throws it right in there out the bat. Hey, this is a story that you need to know. So he just comes out and says it right away. Now the promise of this story is found in its most dynamic character, right? This, this slimy judge. It says, for a while he refused. But then he acted, not because he cares about God, not even because he cares about people. Like, why is he even a judge? Right? But he acted because she was annoying. Right? I don't know what her naming was in Greek, but in English, I'm pretty sure it was Karen. Um, <laughs> Okay, that's hilarious. All right. If Jesus compares the person at prayer to the widow, then is he comparing God to this slimy judge? That doesn't sound like a God I even want to be in a relationship, right? A God that's reluctant, self-interested, annoyed, weak. But Jesus actually, even further, there's not very many parables that he interprets directly right afterwards, but this is one of those because he knows we need to understand it. In verse 6, it says, Then the Lord said, Learn a lesson from the unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think that God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will, just, he will grant justice to them quickly. Right? Jesus doesn't put God on the same level as the judge. He distinguishes God from him. He's like, that slimy judge still did what was right. Don't you think that the perfect God would do even more? Eugene Peterson says, prayer is not begging God to do something for us that he doesn't know about or begging God to do something for us that he's reluctant to do or even begging God to do something that he doesn't have time for. In prayer, we persistently, faithfully, trustingly come before God, submitting ourselves to his sovereignty, confident that he is acting right now on our behalf. So how can we have confidence and assurance in the moments of silence? It's from the fact that Jesus calls us his chosen ones in the same breath there, in that same verse. He says, don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people? What is God up to when when things seem so silent? He's trying to weave history into a redemptive good future for his chosen ones. 
That's you. That's me. That's all who call Jesus their Lord. Now, Scripture makes it clear that God collects two things. Our prayers and our tears. This world in its current form is all going to pass away, but there's something that will continue to be eternal, and that is our prayers and our tears. In the book of Revelation, we're offered a glimpse of the other end of our prayers, the receiving end of our prayers. John is having a vision of what is happening in heaven. In Revelations 5.8, he sees this and he writes it down. He says, And when he took this scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Do you realize what this means? Every prayer you've ever whispered, from the simplest, like, barely given any thought to prayer that's just spit out of your mouth at random, to your deepest, most heartfelt cry, God is collecting like a grandmother in her scrapbook, right? God treasures every prayer that we've ever uttered, even the ones we've forgotten. And he's still weaving their fulfillment, bending history in the direction of a great yes to you and me. Now, the book of Revelation doesn't just end with God presenting you with the scrapbook of your prayers. See, I do remember when you prayed these things, you know? Here's you, here, here's, you know, your best friend back then, you know, and flipping through. That's not how it ends. It ends with God as a powerful redeemer. And three chapters later, those bowls that are filled with your prayers reappear in Revelations 8, 3. It says, Then another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar, and a great amount of incense was given to him to mix with the prayers of God's people as an offering on the gold altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense mixed with the prayers of God's holy people ascended up to God from the altar where the angel had poured them out. Then the angel filled the incense burner with fire from the altar and threw it down upon the earth and the thunder crashed and lightning flashed and there was a terrible earthquake. Guys, at the proper time, then when God feels is the right moment, God will tip that bowl and pull out pour out all of the requests, every prayer prayer that's ever been prayed upon the earth. And with all of those prayers compiled together, God will bring about the renewal of our world, worldwide redemption for everything because of our prayers. Every prayer in the end is an answered prayer. Sure, some are still awaiting a yes, but it's coming. And that's the kind of judge we're dealing with. And yes, sometimes this feels like a cop-out. Especially when you're in the middle of turmoil, of waiting in silence. Right? That, sure, God's going to redeem it all in the end. Doesn't really feel like something that makes me feel better right now. But if you could help to remind yourself that those prayers are working. That they're doing something even in the silence. Uh, I was just reading a book this past week uh, by Bob Goff, and he talks about that sometimes in the silence, just like a, as a parent, that you, want, you know that your child knows what to do and knows how to do it. And so you choose to be silent so that they know they make those choices on their own in the mo- moment of you know, their struggles and the hardship of of maybe how fearful they are of what's next or what's coming ahead or no matter how much pressure is on them in the moment, you choose to be silent because you know they need to, to build that confidence in who they are already. Sometimes God is silent because he already knows you know what to do. And he's already fixing everything else in the world around you. Will God ever answer our prayers and heal my friend Derek? I don't know. On earth? I don't know. Right? But those prayers will find justice and he will be healed at some point. It's guaranteed. Now, God collects more than just our our words that are wedged in between the dear God and the amen. He collects our tears. Psalm 56, 8 says, you keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle, and you've recorded each one in your book. 
Not only there in Psalms, but through the prophets, God spoke many times to them saying, I've seen your tears, or I've seen you in your weeping. Isn't it beautiful that God takes your tears and he stores them and he keeps records of what was going on? He's got like some sort of log book in heaven that's like, Andrew cried one ounce of tears while praying about the church November 1st. Right? And Andrew cried one ounce of tears while praying about his family on September 30th. But then like I know that he's got like a 500-gallon drum, something giant over here labeled, Andrew's tears during a movie that nobody else cried. Right? Um, and then another one labeled like Andrew's tears during America's Got Talent and similar shows. God not only hears and remembers our prayers, but he keeps and records our tears. And there's a purpose for that. Psalm 126, 5 through 6 says, those who plant in tears will harvest with shouts of joy. They weep as they go to plant their seed, but they sing as they return with a harvest. God doesn't just collect and record your weeping. He plans to redeem every tear. God promises that when those tears touch the earth, that they will bring renewal. Every tear of ours that falls to the ground will grow the fruit of redemption. God is bending history so that the moments of our greatest pain become the moments of our greatest redemption, twisting our stories to be sure that the pain we feel releases power for our new life. The tears we cry become a foundation of the better world to come. And we're promised in Revelation 21.4 that at the end of everything, when God redeems all of the world and reveals himself, that, that Father will come and he will wipe every tear away and there will be no more weeping because everything will be redeemed. But until then, we live in this in-between promise that God will not let a single tear of ours be wasted. So here's the promise revealed through the persistent widow spoken to us by our faithful father. It's that I hear you. I will make all things right and all things new. And that new creation is seeded by our prayers and watered by our tears. Our persistence in prayer comes from the promise that we don't pray to a reluctant, half-interested, can't-be-bothered judge but to unfathomably loving Father who collects our prayers like love letters and our tears like fine wine. Now, Jesus' final word in that parable doesn't come in the form of a promise. It actually comes in the form of a challenge. In Luke 11, 8, he says, But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on the earth who have faith? Even in this story, Jesus admits that most people lose steam in the long journey of asking and seeking and knocking. He promises a good ending, so good, in fact, that it will redeem not just the distorted creation as a whole, but every moment of suffering and every individual life, none of it will have been wasted. But Jesus asks us, when the time comes for that full final redemption, will I find people of faith? Those of us who have not lost heart along the way, Now, this isn't talking about moments of doubt, right? Because we all doubt. We're all going to go, God, why are you quiet? Why are you not answering? Why this? Why that? We all will have questions about God and his character because of what we see in front of us. But he's talking about the moments where you just stop believing and trusting in God's goodness completely. Any who have trusted me in my promise, that my promise is enough to keep praying in the face of waiting and disappointment. Will he find us in persistent prayer of the widow who cried out day and night? When we grow impatient with the waiting, when we lose our stamina for persistence, what keeps us praying? Right? We must recover an understanding of God, that God is at work, not in just the final promise, but that in all the acts of persistence along the way. We will all face painful disorientation at some point in our life. The challenging invitation is to trust God even in the darkness. Wrestling with God through persistent prayer is a confirmation of true belief, not of distrusting doubt. Because those who only half-heartedly believe, they don't even take offense at the silence. They expect it. It's only those of us who believe and believe hard 
hard enough to go all the way out on the, the limb of full faith and say, God, you're the only one who could come through and then see that limb snap and just seem to be thrown into a free fall. All right, those who care to wrestle with a God who at times seems fickle. It's only those people who are offended by silence. Right? It bothers those who really believe the most because we know God's goodness. We expect him to do something because we know he can. And when it doesn't happen, it seems to cut deep. I was uh, talking with a friend a couple weeks ago um, who's a pastor uh, not too far from here. And um, just everything I've been feeling lately, losing my dog and our family struggling through all those things, some issues that I'm trying to work through here at church and in my life and just self-issues. And uh, we are chatting via text, and I just want to read you the conversation. Um, you know, we had some small talk, then he asked me, what are you hearing from God through this? My reply was that I don't know if I can even hear God right now. The voices stirring and echoing in my head are really hard to quiet during this time. What I've been hearing before this, and probably lends itself to this moment, is to stop trying to figure it out and to just trust. Right? To find where God is at and just participate in what he's doing. But I feel like God's current just wants to smash me into rocks, right? Barely give me enough moments to get my head above water to breathe. My pastor friend replied, I've been there more times than I'd like to admit. He says, you know where to find breakthrough and clarity and shared uh, Psalm 73, 16 through 17. that says, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. My reply was, doesn't it suck that we can, say we've, that we can all say that we've been there many times? I don't doubt God's goodness overall, but I definitely don't understand his ways. I don't doubt him because he is still who I want to run to. The only way I can see myself staying strong enough to stay and the only one who can make this good. But I feel so defeated right now. He responded, that does suck. The feeling of defeat and weariness and being drained is hard, especially when you're doing all the things you feel like you need to do, but they don't seem to be making you feel better. I don't understand his ways either, but like you, I know he is good. I know he is the only way through these times, and he will surely bring you through it. Despite what you see now, the day will come when you look back and say, surely God's goodness and love have followed me all the days of my life. If you're feeling this message extra today, know that I'm right there with you. But also know that standing by us is a God that is always good. Romans 8, 27 through 28 says, And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. Isn't that awesome? That verse, like, we, 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 we know Romans 8, 28 often, right? We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Right? That is a verse to stand upon often. What I love is verse 27. It says, and the Father who knows our hearts also knows what the Spirit is saying. And the Spirit pleads for us. You want to know why God works everything out for our good? Because the Holy Spirit is pleading on your behalf, knowing the will of God, knowing your heart, and can cry out the exact prayers that you need. The real issue with this is that pain and suffering have the capacity to deepen you and transform you, but at the same time, they have the capacity to destroy you, to harden your heart against everything, to not expect goodness to happen anywhere in your life ever again, to just start assuming that God wants everything in your life to go bad. Right, that when it rains, it's going to pour. Right, and to just never expect anything better. Right? Will the pain and suffering and the needs that intrude our own stories harden our hearts or will they soften our souls? How does the very pain that is eating us alive become an agent of deep transformation? We have to invite God in. And that's really hard because we feel that God is the one who broke our trust. We invite the one that we feel hurt us to come and heal us. And it's the most courageous of all choices. Because right? nobody wants to invite somebody back in they can't trust. We must remember that this God that we feel betrayed us is also the same Jesus that wept in the garden because of the same silence. 
that went to the cross and suffered for us. Jesus reveals a God who's offensively human in contrast to any other world religion, right? A God who knows the overwhelming nature of suffering in the fallen world. A God who miraculously healed a leper only to go on living in a world filled with leper colonies. Who opened the eyes of a blind man probably on the same day that a baby was born blind. A God who displays healing power but also chooses personal suffering as a means to bring final healing. The author Parker Palmer said, the deeper our faith, the more doubt we must endure. The deeper our hope, the more prone we are to despair. The deeper our love, the more pain its loss will bring. These are a few of the paradoxes that we must hold as human beings. But if we refuse to hold them in the hopes of living without doubt, despair, and pain, then we find ourselves living without hope and faith and love. We can trust the God who is revealed in Jesus. The God who has never looked down on suffering from a lofty throne, but has always looked into the eyes of suffering from level ground. We can trust the God who refuses to offer platitudes from a safe distance, and the God who descends instead into the mess with us. Right? This is something we preach, right? but it's always hard to believe in the mess. Right? That God never promised to keep us from suffering. He actually promised the opposite. What he did promise, though, is to be with us in it. Isaiah 43, 1-2 says, Do not be afraid, for I have ransomed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. Right? From that, if it was just that verse, we would assume that man, he's ransomed us. He's paid our debt. He's, he's bought our freedom. He's brought us out of all these things. And we begin to assume that means we will be taken care of and nothing will happen. But Jesus, if God goes on and says, When you go through deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. Right now, this is common through scripture from beginning to end. That God promises to be with us and we can trust in that. And from that trust, we can become people who are resilient. That's the the point of Jesus saying, ask, seek, and knock is that we would find him. Because that is the promise of prayer. It's not that all of our answers will come the way we thought they are, but that we would find God. Because he is always there in the middle of it all. I want to end with this story. In the book of Daniel chapter 3, we find the story of these three dudes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yeah. Now they, they worked for King Nezi, Nebuchadnezzar. And this king made a statue that he wanted everybody to bow down to at a certain time of the day. Now these three guys, they were followers of God, and they knew that the Ten Commandments told them not to bow to any other idols. So when the time came for everybody to bow down, they did not. And they got in trouble. Some people snitched on them to the king. And king Nezi was furious. He brought them in, and he told them their punishment was to be thrown into this blazing, fiery furnace. In Daniel 3.16, we hear their response. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, and I don't know if they did this like one word at a time or like they had it pre-planned and said it all at once, but somehow all three of them replied, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves to you. If we are thrown into a blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, We want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. Now, if you know the story, you know that they were thrown into the fire. But before they were thrown into the fire, the king, their statement made the king so mad that he made the furnace even hotter. That actually killed some of his own servants because it was so hot outside of the furnace. And he he ordered the strongest men to come in and tie them up so that they wouldn't be able to escape and then had them thrown in. Now, to the king's surprise, when he goes to look in to, to celebrate his victory over them, he looks in and he starts counting the guys. And he's like, didn't we only throw three in? And they're like, yeah, there's three people. You know, you know them by name. And he's like, there's another person with them in the fire. One that looks like a god. He called them out of the furnace and they walked out to find that none of their clothes were burned, 
Not a single hair singed. They didn't even smell like smoke. I want you to hear a few things about godly resilience that leads to persistence in prayer. We don't have to defend ourselves to our enemy. That's God's job. In the middle of all that waiting and silence, the enemy is going to be there nonstop going, well, what do you think about your God now? What do you think he's up to? You think he's actually still doing something? You think he's actually going to answer? We don't have to defend God. We don't have to defend ourselves to that. You don't have to have an answer for those questions. That's God's job. We need to have faith. Secondly, we need to have faith that our God can do what we ask. Just like them, God can save me from your fiery furnace. We're not afraid. But we also have to go, even if God doesn't, we will still serve God. That's resilience. That's persistence in prayer. Even if God doesn't, are you going to serve him? You know what makes the whole thing worse is that that always makes the enemy more upset. And then sometimes he can turn up the heat in our situation. I'm sure at least one of them in that moment, they're like, we're never going to bow down. And he's like, turn up the heat. And Benny was like, what do we do now? Like, I knew we shouldn't have said anything. And that feels like life sometimes, right? That it's like, you know, okay, God, I'm okay with you not answering this right now. We're going to be fine. And you, you have a moment of peace. Everything falls apart outside of that. And you're like, what? why? Right? And the only thing that you did to deserve it was do exactly what God asked you to do. And then you still get thrown in the furnace. Because God's promise was never to keep you from the furnace. His promise is that he'll show up in the furnace. Right? If you want to meet God... Cry out for the moments of a furnace. Be okay with it. We spend so much time running away from the painful moments that we miss out on the opportunities to be the closest to God, to see his miraculous hand, right? Because when they came out of the furnace, there was no evidence they were ever in it because God is that good, right? God doesn't have to keep you from the furnace to keep you from looking like you've been in it. God sends you through it and then takes you out of it like it's never happened because he can keep you all together and he will bring you out to the other side. So keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you for everyone who asks receives and everyone who seeks finds and everyone who knocks the door will be opened now like we've been doing we're going to end with a time of practice and the form the prayer in the form of this persistent widow is understood in three movements and so we're going to pray these three kind of things um, the first is just pray it say it like you Right? Don't begin with grit. Don't go into it like, God, I have so much faith right now. When you don't. Right? Start with this. God, where, where are you? Why'd you put me there? Why is this happening? Right? Naming the pain. Naming your needs to God. Right? He collects all your tears. Just let them go. Right? Drag up the painful experiences and the silence, the perceived absence and rejection. Tell God your disappointments in prayer and don't water it down. Forget your manners. Tell it like it is. Secondly, listen for the question. Invite God to show you the question beneath your disappointments. Beneath the circumstances left in the wake of your disappointments lives a question about the character of God. Right? Is God really loving? Is he really listening? Is he really caring? Is God really powerful? Can God even heal this? These are the, those questions that leave you in these moments of disappointment. Is God really bending everything towards redemption? Are these prayers really being saved up to be restored at some point? Find the question that you are wrestling with. 
Because there will be a question that's hooked on God's person, his character. And until you wrestle with that question, you will never recover from that question. So third, you ask God to meet you in the question. He heals through this process of pointed questions. So this question you discovered holds within it a power of healing. Invite him and keep inviting him in. He is a miracle working God who sometimes opens the eyes of the blind. He's also a divine companion who sometimes just stumbles around with us in the dark, wearing our pain alongside us. He is a master healer and he knows exactly what you need. Our only role is to keep inviting, keep inviting. And through this process, you will discover the faith to ask again, to keep on interceding and to fill up that heavenly bowl. He is less interested in our asking out of duty or gritted teeth. He's more interested in the kind of asking that emerges from the healed heart of recovered faith. Right, so we're gonna practice. Say it like you mean it. Listen for that question and ask God to meet you there.
verse that I, I hold on to often, 2 Timothy 2.13, it says that if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You know, and maybe you're not wrestling with something right now. Maybe it's not, but I, I can guarantee there'll become a moment because God wants to meet us. God wants to shape us and there will be moments of hardship and things that you go through and this I think is one of the most powerful spots of prayer that exists is when you have to learn to, to wrestle through things. If you look through scripture is all the people that, that their lives are completely changed after these moments of, of really wrestling with God with trying to understand what was happening in their life. And I think because there's often moments that we come to a spot where we feel faithless in what God is doing and who he is and what he has for us. But we have to remember that he is faithful. And he stays faithful. He is always faithful to us. His plan is not dependent on our faithfulness. He is always good and he is always working for our good. So let me pray for you and then dismiss. God, we're just, we come before you and we're just thank, grateful, thankful, God, for your faithfulness to us, God. God, that even in our silence, or even your silence, God, in our persistence and our, our praying and our wanting and our, our waiting, God, that you are doing something, Lord. Even if it's just storing up our tears and our prayers for a, a time that, that is unknown to us, for them to be redeemed upon the earth, Lord. That you are still working. God, we sing those words often, that even when it doesn't look like it, God, you're still working. God, may we believe that. May we stay persistent in that. That we wouldn't worry about defending ourselves to the enemy, defending why we have faith. That we would be people who have the faith that you are working things out. And even if you don't, that we would still be people who are resilient and persistent in our prayers to you, God. God, and beyond all those things, that we would find you there. That we would look for you in the mess that we would find you in the waters and in the fires. And God, that we would recognize that when we come out the other side, that we don't have any evidence of being beaten up or tattered or, or torn apart, God, but we come out better, stronger, because we're with you. God, you heard the, the prayers and the cries of these people. I pray, God, that you would just come. God, that we would see your hand move, Lord. We know that you are faithful. But even if you don't, that we would still trust and we would still serve you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Right, go and be resilient in prayer today.